And this is a fun passage. You know, people tell their story. When I say people, I don't mean individuals. I mean people, groups, nations, all of that, tell their story for a variety of reasons. But in part, people write down their own history to explain the right to rule, right? They, we, we want to know, like, why is it that this guy gets to be the king and why is it that th- these people win or whatever? And so, so ancient people groups, a lot like modern people groups, uh, they, they write down their story so we know why is this person in charge. And, and I think that that's a wonderful paradigm to study the Old Testament because the people of Israel really don't, claim the same right to rule as any other ancient people groups. Almost every other people group, it's because the king says, well, I don't know if you got this memo, but I'm divine. I come from a long line of divine people, and so that's how I rule. It's either that or because we beat you in the war, and our gods are better than your gods. And so there's a cosmic battle that's been won that was borne out in the fact that we beat you guys up in the, in the battle, and that's why we rule. And, but, but David is not like that. The like prototypical, the high point in the monarchy in Israel is not like that. And one of the reasons the ancient Hebrews wrote this story, again, the Bible is a divine book. Amen? God wrote the Bible. The Bible is also a human book. Amen? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, there's a reason that people, that people chose to wrote these, write these stories. We see the hand of God in it. We also see reasoning of these people. And, and in this prologue that we kind of are going to spend three weeks in, last week we talked about the natural disaster that happened in uh, 2 Samuel 21. Today we're going to talk about the natural disaster that happens in, uh, in 2 Samuel 24. And so making the, the kind of edges of the sandwich of this um, uh, of this uh, prologue to this long work of Samuel. Um, and this, this, at the end, here, just as they're wrapping things up, like the last, the conclusion chapter, the afterword almost, largely is written to answer the question, what makes David worthy of leadership? Just now that you've heard all the story, you might get to the end of David's like life, the end of David's story, and go, I have totally forgotten. Why was this guy in charge at all? Like, the first half was pretty good. The second half was pretty bad. Why was it that David was the guy that was the man after God's own heart? What's unique? What's special about David? Not only that, for those of us this side of the cross, we might be pretty interested in going, why does the New Testament seem so interested in connecting Jesus to David? Like, I'm not sure I would connect anybody to David, and I'm also not sure Jesus should be connected to any human being, especially one as flawed as David. So what was it about David that gave him the right to rule? Why is it that God would say, this is, this is sort of what I'm looking for? Why this story? Well, I want us to pay attention to the arc of David in this story. This is another story where we get to see all of David's flaws, but David ends up a very different person at the end of this story than he was at the start of this story. And that is a particularly like Christian idea that we would always be growing and maturing, that there would be like birth and growth to maturity, that there would be like entering into the kingdom, and then we would mature and learn and grow. And we get to see, that's not a side of the story many kings tell you. If a king starts with, well, I rule because I'm divine, not a lot of stories about here's how I grew. But David, his 
you know, ancestors tell the story of David, warts and all, but also growth. So let's look at the arc of this very strange and I think pretty wonderful story. We'll also have to have, we'll have to start here with a little question and answer day. Like there's going to be something that if, if it doesn't jump out at you and go, what? In the first verse, then you need to pay attention and read it again. Okay, watch. I brought, I bought glasses uh, today so I wouldn't be guessing at some of the words. <laughs> Starts with an A, maybe again. Um, <laughs> again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them. Nobody's, nobody's worried yet. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? And he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to, uh, said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while uh, the eyes of my lord the king will see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this? But the king's words prevailed against Joab and the commander of the army. So between there and verse 9, you get the story of Joab. And look, if Joab thinks something, you guys know Joab by now, right? If Joab thinks something's a bad idea, like, it's probably a bad idea. Like, Joab's not a man of, like, we wouldn't say character. <laughs> what typifies Joab in, in the book of 2 Samuel? And, but he does it. He goes and he, he, uh, he numbers the people for David, the very end uh, of that section. So uh, verse 9 ends with, so they find out there are 800, takes some months to do it, find out there are 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword um, in Israel, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Well, that, that's a pretty old story. What do we make out of that? Well, first, we do have to have some question and answer day stuff, some big things to work out in verse 1. First of all, what's God so angry about? It just says, again, the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. And that doesn't seem super fair. Like, if you're going to tell us what God's mad about, why don't you tell us what God's mad about, you know? And it's just not outlined. And maybe it's to hearken back to the story in chapter 21, where we can look and go, maybe God's mad about the same things he was mad about in chapter 21, which would be a good, like, critical thinking kind of thing to do. And we go, okay, what was last week? Last week seemed a long time ago. What, uh, what was God mad about last week? Well, last week was the story of the, the monarch, David, ignoring the injustice that happened to the Gibeonite people remember this? And we talked about how God cares about Gibeonites. Again, Gibeonites are this little bitty people group who like tricked their way into a peace treaty with Israel, um, who ended up just the servant class, like no ancient, really no monarchy ever cares about people like the Gibeonites. And yet God cares so desperately about them that it makes him mad when Israel forgets about um, this small, insignificant people group to the point where he says, I'm going to send a famine to get your attention so there's justice for the downtrodden. There's justice for these people that nobody's giving justice to. And we learn a lot about the heart of God there. So it could be that there's some sort of injustice happening like that, again, in chapter 24, that has God's ire up towards the people. We also could you know, hop, uh, hop in our reference uh, material. That's my favorite couple of shelves in my office, those, those reference books. And we could say, where else have we seen the, Kindle, uh, the, the anger of the Lord kindled against 
Israel. That's an odd thing. And, you know, we're going to talk about this a couple of times, but it really shows the relational instead of mechanical covenant that God has with the people. Because we think if, if, if it's mechanical, is it like, oh, the people do something and then God gets mad and they have to fix it? But if you've ever been a parent, you know that love and kindled anger are not mutually exclusive. In fact, I don't get mad at other people's kids almost ever. There's some kids right now probably off running around doing all kinds of stuff. Doesn't bother me. It bothers me when my, the people I love are rebellious, yeah? Fortunately, no kindled anger in the Combs house ever. Four perfect children on the planet, they ended up in my house. Um, that's going to be expensive. I always, t- I always have to pay my kids when I tell stories about them. Um, so where else, what else happens in the history of Israel when we see this phrase, the kindled anger of the Lord towards Israel? Well, just a couple of, of examples. We could be here all day doing this, but, um, but Judges 2.20 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. Judges 2. 20. What's going on in Judges? Judges is the story. The, the almost conquest of, of the nations is complete, and the people are turning to foreign gods. All of a sudden, um, instead of just this like, we'll march around the city with the ark going first and whatever, now they're looking over going, Baal worship seems pretty good. And you know what? This Asherah thing, I mean, it makes sense. We're praying to gods for fertility. We're we're having, you know, sacrifices that are different than the sacrifices that Yahweh's told us to make. And the people have started to wander into the culture. Instead of being the lighthouse that would share God's light to the nations, the darkness is creeping in. And this kindles God's anger. Numbers 32, 13. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Woo! <laughs> until their entire generation of those, uh, of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Okay, so Numbers 32. What's going on in Numbers 32? Well, the people are at the Jordan River. We're ready to go in and, and um, you know, take over Canaan and enter the promised land like God promised. And we've sent some spies, and the spies have come back, and 10 of the spies have gone. Those guys are huge. We can't do it. Two faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb, they go, ah, come on, we can take them. God's on our side. Who could be against us? But, but the 10 won the day. And can you imagine God saying, all of the plagues, a year at the foot of the mountain, the 10 commandments come to you, a rekindled relationship with you. We had us a marriage ceremony so you could be the bride and I could be the husband. I marched you right here so you could take the promised land. Pharaoh, they're, they're not even an army anymore because we like wrecked them at the Red Sea. And, and then here we are and you're walking across going, I don't think we can take them because they're big. So to oversimplify so we don't have to be here for a semester, <laughs> the anger of God gets kindled when his people stray into the idolatry of the nations around them and, to when, and when they refuse to trust God. They trust their eyes instead of God. So Israel was supposed to be a lighthouse. 
Israel was supposed to be a little bit of Eden, the place where man and God dwell together. It was supposed to grow from there. They were supposed to be this little Edenic reality, this little place where God and man live in peace, and that was supposed to spread throughout the nations. And instead, we see the culture of the nations creeping into Israel. And this is what kindles God's anger. Over and over, and Israel gave into temptation to be like everyone else. They were called to be holy, and instead they acted like everyone else. So while we aren't told here in chapter 24 of 2 Samuel exactly why God's anger was kindled, we can guess, and we'll probably be right. It's when Israel acts like the nations. There's a word, syncretism. It's when we kind of go, how can I be a Christian and like the world at the same time? How can I have the forms of faith but then rely on all the same things that everybody else is relying on? How can I call myself a Christian because I'm religious, but really what I'm counting on, what I'm trusting in is not the Lord, but is in the news of the day, the politicians, the bank account, the sports team winning, whatever it is. Syncretism. This is what kindles the anger of the Lord. The second thing, if you thought that was difficult and fun, watch this. The second thing that we have to deal with in the first chapter, or in the first verse, and I promise to pick it up a little bit here in a minute, is that God incites David, and then later David is punished for doing what God incited him to do. You guys comfortable with that? I have found that there's a couple ways to be comfortable with that. One is you can be able to just, well, God's ways are not my ways. His ways are higher than mine. If, if that's fine. That's true. His ways are higher than mine, and I don't have to understand every word, and that's fine too. Um, but I think there's a little meat on those bones. We could actually learn something. So let's hold it in an open hand, and I'm not sure I have a great answer for this, but not having a great answer never stopped me from giving it a shot. So, so let's look at it in a couple of different ways. First, so that what we're trying to wrestle with is why is God inciting things that then he's going to have to punish David for? And before I even talk about that, it's more confusing than that. This same story is told in 1 Chronicles 21. It's almost word for word, same story. But in 1 Chronicles 21, it is Satan that entices David to the census. Well, Satan, S-A-T-A-N. Satan is the one who convinces, entices David to take a census of the people. In some ways, that's a lot easier because David's going to get in trouble for doing it. I'd rather Satan did it. What do we do? Should we pick our favorite one? Should we get rid of one or the other? When we read through the Bible in a year, should we decide which history we want to read and not mess with the other one? What do we make of all that? Can I give you three options? And you can pick whichever one makes your heart happiest and you have the best afternoon. Option one is that God is using an evil spirit or allowing Satan to work in David's life. That makes some sense. We can roll with that. We might even turn to passages like, like Paul saying that an evil spirit had been sent to buffet him, that God is using something painful in Paul's life so he doesn't get too cocky. Um, 
Or even earlier in Samuel, where we're told that God sent a harmful spirit to Saul. And we talked about how an evil spirit from Saul's perspective, a harmful spirit from, Saul, from Saul's perspective, might not necessarily be evil like we think of it, but might just be something that Saul doesn't like. And there's room for that interpretation here in 2 Samuel as well. Certainly, again, certainly if you've been authority over anybody, there's been times when you did something and they said, I didn't like that, that didn't feel good, that was evil. But from your perspective, it seemed like the right idea. It was right. So both of those kind of examples were to buffet human weakness and, and they were good for the person. It still doesn't really answer who is inciting David, but you at least can see that the inciting of David is not necessarily an evil thing, even though David does bad stuff with it. So option two, and who actually incited David? Option two might be that this is part of the biblical tradition of God giving rebellious people over to their rebellion. It sure looks like several times in the Bible, people are walking away from God, and at some point, God goes, you know what, go. And if you get to the end of that road and you figure out you're wrong, and if you're the path you're on, if your heart continues to harden and you get to a point where you go, oh my gosh, what have I done? God says, just turn around. Then you can repent. A couple of examples of this would be Pharaoh's heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? We're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And yet, we're also told that Pharaoh over and over is making decisions to not let the people go. You know this story? So who did it? It's pretty clear that God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's also pretty clear that Pharaoh's heart is hardening in line with the decisions he's making. There's a human side and a divine side to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Maybe it's something like that that's going on here with David. Another example of that, a New Testament example, might be from 1 Corinthians 15. There's a story of an immoral man in the Corinthian church, and we're talking varsity-level immoral, right? I preached through 1 Corinthians, and this was one of the passages I was like, this is icky. I'm going to do it, but I don't really like it. Um, and the advice, Paul's advice to the church with this incredibly immoral man, do you remember what the advice is? He says, turn this guy over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his soul may be saved on the day of the Lord. So maybe something like that's happening here, that, that God is allowing David to be turned over because David is leading in an immoral way and David is being turned over by God to the adversarial enemy. It's almost like God at times says, let this guy feel the weight of his sin. That might be what saves him. If he just understands, if I remove this protection and turn him over to evil, maybe he'll wake up. And that certainly is what happens in this story. So maybe God and Satan are both involved somehow in this, in David's life, and in some way. Maybe David leans into pride, and God is turning him over to temptation of Satan so that he figures out that living in pride is wrong. That's, that fits the narrative of the story. Option three requires us to look at the language, especially in the First Chronicles uh, story. You know, Satan by itself means... Um, adversary. It means uh, enemy, somebody who's opposed to someone else. And like English words, um, the word adversary can be used with a, okay, look, if you need to check football scores because this stuff's boring to you, I'll promise I'll just be three minutes, okay? So now's the time. It can be used with a definite article or an indefinite article. We can have an adversary or we can have the adversary. You with me so far? 
So almost every time that the word Satan, Zatan, is used as a noun in the Old Testament, there's a, um, there's a definite article by it. It is the Satan. It's referring to the being who, has the great, who is the great adversary of God's people. I don't think there's pitchforks and horns involved, but we're all on the same page, right? You know what we're talking about. A few times the word Satan is used with, uh, without the, the indefinite article, and we have a Satan an adversary. In only two places it's used without this definite article refer, re, refers to a divine being. Here in 2 Samuel 24 and in Numbers 22. Numbers 22 is the story of Balaam. Do you remember this? Okay, I have to tell you, the story of Balaam is very important to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, God uses a talking donkey, and I have always said, if God can use a talking donkey, he could use me, Right? If ever you have to present a Bible study or tell anybody anything, just give your heart to Jesus, pray like crazy for the people you're going to teach, and remember that it is in God's wheelhouse to use talking donkeys. That's super important uh, in my life. Also, I grew up in church, and when you get to the Sunday school story of, of uh, Balaam and his talking donkey, but it's King James and they don't use donkey, that's the best day of sixth grade. That's, that's, it does, Sunday school doesn't get any better than that. And it talked. <laughs> so that's how Numbers 22 plays a story in my life. <laughs> but in that story, Balaam is wrong. And Balaam is heading off to do the wrong thing. And the angel of the Lord comes and opposes Balaam. And we are told, and he is called an adversary, an Satan, a Satan, not the, but a Satan. And that is the way it's used here in 2 Samuel 24. And I think this is profound, for all of my joking aside. I think this is profound because it, it means that this is in the range of something God will do. The God in our sin especially if we are harming other people, will become our adversary. It could be. Again, if option one makes you feel better, enjoy the buffet. I hope your team wins. It's great. But it's possible. The language allows for this. That David is leading in such a way that God becomes his adversary. And I don't think this means God switches sides or decides something different about David. Again, I think this tells us about the relational nature of God and his people. Do you have anybody that you are in charge of that is maybe younger than you, that you love a lot? Have you ever become their adversary because they were moving in the wrong direction? Of course you have. I teach two classes at Trinity Christian High School. There are students that I'm sure have walked out of my class and gone, Mr. Combs is against me. And from their perspective, maybe I was. But I promise it was because I loved them enough to be their adversary. So this is in the realm, the language allows for that. That God out of his love becomes the Zatan, a Zatan, an adversary. So David will change. It certainly is relational, not mechanical. 
It certainly seems like it's the wrong thing to do to have this census. Joab certainly recognizes that David's census is sinful. And let's be honest, um, if Joab thinks it's wrong, it's got to be pretty wrong. So Joab says, David, we've got plenty of warriors. Why the power move in numbering them? But, but Joab can always be talked into doing something. <laughs> you know, he can always be talked into trouble. So he does, he goes and finds the extent of David's power. You know, I was trying to think, what would this be like in our lives? I wonder if it would be like, like, like needing to trust God for something. There's, a, there's a, a, you know, a, a bad call from the doctor. There's a bad call from the bank. There's, a, you know, something. And instead of going to prayer and just trusting that God will help, we like, we count our money. We, we do all of the, the work to find out if we can take care of ourselves. Instead of just going, God, I'm just yours. This is what David does. So David does the wrong thing, but he's going to grow. Let's look at Act 2, where David goes from, he, he experiences guilt because he did the wrong thing. And again, here's where you go, David's kind of a knucklehead sometimes, but kings don't feel guilty, right? Like this is a pretty godly guy who would say, oh, quickly go, oh my gosh, I did the wrong thing. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him. Man, I felt that. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. That's a, that's a leader, man. If you have a leader who will say, I was wrong. If you are a leader, be a leader like that. I have sinned. I, my heart got struck. I did something wrong. I have sinned, and I'm honest about it. It's awesome. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer. He's like David's personal like mentor, prophet that interfaces um, with God, saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I, that I may do it. So Gad came to David and told him and said, shall three years famine come into your land or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you or shall there be three days pestilence in the land now consider and decide what answer i shall return to him who sent me then david said to gad i am in great distress let us fall let us fall into the hand of the lord for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hands of men so here's what's going on david has done the census he's numbered his people and in doing that, he acts like any other king. This is just something kings do. So they can find out how big the army is so they can go pick a fight with somebody and also so they can tax people. This is why kings do census. And David has acted just like a regular king. But he's not acting like a regular king as he proclaims, I've sinned. David is worthy of rule, not because he's perfect, because he knows he isn't. Hey, Christians, you know what's unique about Christians? We're the ones who go, I'm not worthy. I, I know I have flaws. I'm not counting on my perfection. I'm not even counting on my good works. I know for sure I'm a problem. But we're counting on the mercy of the Lord. So David turns to Yahweh. He says, now Yahweh, now, O Lord, take away my iniquity. I have done foolishly. Man, Christians, Christian leaders, Christians in general are not those who think we are the best. We are those who have come face to face with our own folly and have sought forgiveness. Stop fighting for yourself, man. Say sorry. We come closer to Jesus as we learn not to spend our time proving we are right. That's what the internet's for. Prove you're right. But actually, 
and the kingdom of God. We get closer to the Lord, not as we learn to fight for our own rightness, but as we learn to quickly say, I'm a, I, I'm a fool. I, I experienced folly here. God, would you forgive me? So David has come around. He's recognized his sin, but he doesn't yet come all the way around to leading with a heart for his people. I love this. You just get to see David. Good job. Ah, you did it again. You know, like you're just human. Like this is how I am too. So he's given three choices. Gad says, okay, here's what God's saying. You can have three years of famine. That would clearly be rough on everybody. In fact, we're probably supposed to think about chapter 21 where we've already been through years of famine. It was brutal. We don't want that one. Or you can be three months on the run from your enemies. David's been there before. He didn't like it, but he's been there before. He's been on the run from, uh, and we, I'm not real sure where this story takes place in the timeline. You know, there's no timestamp on it. So he's at least been on the run from, uh, from Saul, maybe from Absalom, but, but David's well, you know, uh, he's been on the run from the Philistines. He's well acquainted with what it means to be out there in the the wilderness of Canaan on the run so but it is going to be a rough three months like does any any of you want to take God up on that hey how you go about go be homeless while people try to kill you for three months yeah. is there anything else there is or you can have three days of pestilence now three days is pretty short but pestilence is not something that ends when it ends pestilence is something that has consequences for everybody for a long time so David chooses not to be the brunt of the punishment himself, but he says it in a way that almost sounds right. He says, I am in great distress. Ah, lament. Okay, good. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord. Yes, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. That sounds pretty good, right? But let me not fall into the hands of man. You know, committing his people to God sounds okay. Appealing to God's mercy is fine, but look how he, had, how he justifies avoiding the punishment personally. Instead of saying, God, I'm the leader. You called me to lead, and I have led my people into idolatry. Man, I don't want these people to suffer for what I've done. Give it to me. That's a leader, by the way, who doesn't spend time going, hey, it's everybody else's fault, but spends time going, I'm the leader, I'll take it. And David, instead of doing that, goes, on the run for three months? How many songs do I need to write? And he goes, I, I don't want to take the brunt. I'll let God decide. We'll, we'll put it in his hands. You know, the other thing is he says, oh, let me not be, fall into the hands of man. Would David be in the hands of man? Like, didn't he just make that up? Who said anything about David falling to his enemies? God says, no, you're going to be on the run from your enemies. Has David seen God like work in that situation before? Oh, mightily. David has a chance to say, God, I can, I can let the people that you've given me to shepherd, I can let them not suffer. And all I have to do for three months is just put myself in your hands again, just like before. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough, but it's only going to be me. And God, I will trust you like I did before. But he doesn't do that. I've, I'm, I'm basically quoting this from a sermon I heard one time before that I just thought, I don't remember anything else, but I remember this line. I believe in a closed canon. We're not missing any of the Bible. But there might have been some things that David would have learned and maybe even some Psalms we would have had 
if David would have said, I've led poorly. I want to start leading well. God, let the burden fall on me. And I'm going to trust you for that three months. I mean, David pinned under rocks that he can look at and say, God is my refuge like this. We've got some pretty good material from that. And instead, David says, I just don't want to. So, God can take care of David in the wilderness. He's done it before, but David isn't going to be put into the hands of his enemies, but he's unwilling to place himself in the hands of God. Hey, if we have a chance to place ourselves in God's hands and protect other people, let's do it. Act three of this kind of arc. David grows some responsibility. There's some self-sacrifice. Look at starting in 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And uh, there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba. So it took over the whole land, 70,000 men. And when the angel struck out his hand towards Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruina, the Jebusite. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Do you see David change? He sees the suffering in his decision. And to David's great credit, this is why what delineates David from other ancient kings is instead of going, well, as long as the pestilence doesn't hit the palace, but rather David has this moment where he sees the suffering of his people and goes, God, don't let these sheep suffer. Bring it on me. I think it's interesting that we get a number, like just that there's a number at all. It's, it's a number with a seven, so it certainly has something to do with completion or like the gravity of the whole thing. But, but people suffer instead of David. 70,000 men die in the pestilence. It's almost like the author is saying, David wanted to count people. Well, here you go. This is what a leader who's unwilling to put himself in the hands of God for the sake of the people, this is what happens. 70,000 people die. God relents of destroying Jerusalem. And David, to his credit, recognizes that people are suffering for his sin. I hope you're seeing the arc in David's life. He's learning the, about godly leadership, about godly living, that it's about sacrifice and not the exercise of power. Let me say that slow, that godly living is about sacrifice and not the exercise of power. This is what's different than the church from every other organization or movement. Is that we do not care about our power. We care about service. God has the power. We're comfortable with that. We're those who serve and serve greatly. This might actually be the greatest contribution of the biblical worldview to modern life where everybody is fighting for their rights and fighting to win and fighting to live the easiest life with the least sacrifice and fighting for their team and the whole thing. The Bible would say, eh, the good life is in laying down your rights for others. And that is unique. And that is not particularly popular. And again, if you don't like it, that's fine. Have a good afternoon. But over and over, we're told 
To be great in the kingdom of God means to be the servant of all. And then Act 4, David's temple preparation and self-sacrifice. David finally not only knows he's wrong, but takes some responsibility. And I maybe won't read this whole thing to you, but Gad comes to David and, and has another word from the Lord. And he says, hey, there's this Jebusite guy. And by the way, Jerusalem was a Jebusite town before David conquered it. So, so there's a guy that's in his hometown. He's got a threshing floor way up on the top of the hill. And, and, and the prophet tells David, why don't you go buy that? And why don't you erect an altar to the Lord? And we're going to get right with God here. It's been a hard season. People have died. You've figured out that that um, it was your fault, that it was your lack of leadership, and, and, but you figured it out. You said, sorry, we're on the right track. Let's get right with God here. Why don't you go buy that threshing floor and let's build an altar? And David goes up and the guy says, you could have it. David says, no, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy this. I want to I pay. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace sacrifice and, and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. So this is not just a story. Again, why do people tell their own story? This is not just a story about David growing in humility. It's a story about how the, the temple mount was purchased for Israel, that this is where Solomon's temple is going to be built in just a generation from now. David purchases the land that will eventually become the Temple Mount, and in doing so, completes the project that he started many years before to gather all the material so that his son would build the temple. And again, David is learning to serve without glory. You're just going to buy this thing, you're going to make a sacrifice, somebody else is going to build the temple. And we're hearing about the temple, the presence of God, the identic reality. This is where God and people meet in this temple how that was the capital in Israel and not the palace. That it wasn't political or military power that led these people, but rather it was the presence of God. You know, like we have throughout this last four, six-week kind of um, series in at the end of David's life, I, I just think it's so appropriate to think about King Jesus. As we see David kind of having to learn to submit, as we see David having to learn to be someone who thinks about other people, who leads with the courage that says, put the burden on me instead of on the people. I mean, how, how much should we marvel at our king here in the kingdom of God? David learns humility. Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto, a thing to be grasped, but rather humbled himself and took the form of a servant, even obeying to the cross. What other king do you need? Who else are you going to follow? Have you ever even heard of any sacrifice like that? David has to learn this stuff. It's just who Jesus is. Jesus looked at people in the eye and said, I did not come to be served. Every human gets born knowing they're here to be served. Go to a junior high school. Go to a preschool. It's just all right. 
And yet, I didn't mean the junior high thing. We all walk into rooms and go, is this good for me? Am I going to be served well here? And Jesus goes, I ain't come to be served. I came to serve. Do you know another king like that? Do you know, do you know another leader like that? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to give your life to? Who are you going to put your hope in? What's your, what, what, what hope do you have for the good life here and eternity ever after? David has to learn that leadership means bearing the burden of the, uh, of, of the sin of the people. Jesus came so that he could bear the burden of the sin of the world. Guys, submit to Jesus alone. Act like Jesus alone. Laying down yourself for others. Learn from the story what David had to learn. It's, one of the, it's, it's really the wisest people in the world read stories and don't go, I'm going to have to learn that same lesson the hard way, but rather go, oh, the lesson that David just learned, I'm just going to learn it without the pain. Learn that leadership means service. Learn about humility. Learn about the pain that we cause other people when we refuse to submit to God and God alone. And rejoice that we have a Savior who took the burden of our sin so that we might say there is joy in the house of the Lord. Hey, let me pray for you. We'll sing the doxology together. But if I could just give you a minute and you could just think about where your hope is. Like, where, what are you trusting for love, peace, and joy right now? To say that Lighthouse Baptist is the one place in the world where syncretism with the culture is no temptation would be foolhardy. Where has the culture crept in to where you've put your hope in something that is not God? Would we just repent of that together and go, man, we're just for Jesus and that's it? Let's learn the lesson that David learned. The easy way, just reading David learning it. And let's be fully trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Can I give you a minute to go to him?